Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnership force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. In this episode, Major General John Brennan sits down with Lieutenant General Retired Mike Nagata and Major Ryan Min for a discussion on Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and the importance of diversity, inclusion, and culture. So as we celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the month of May, uh, we thought it'd be a great idea to reach out to some icons from within our formation, like Lieutenant General Retired Mike Nagata, uh, who spent the better part of 30 years in Army Special Operations. And we're just curious, sir, to hear your story and what got you interested in joining SOF and then any barriers you saw to success throughout your career based upon your race and where you came from. Thank you very much, John. And before starting, first of all, I want to thank you and I want to thank your team for inviting me to be here. This is such an important conversation, particularly, as you know, the convergence these days now between our Memorial Day observances and the month of May is always Asian American and Pacific Islander month. That is an opportunity that we should never ignore to reflect on a lot of different things, but central to them is the question, are we on the right path? Can we do better when it comes to how special operations forces broadly, our sophomore specifically, and necking it down a little more to the special forces community, are we taking maximum advantage of all the talent and potential that exists across American society for development into the kinds of special forces or special operations talent that our national security challenges will increasingly demand of us? Or is there going to be a gap between what the nation requires and what our community is able to deliver? Obviously, everybody on this call is determined that there not be a gap, that we fulfill the requirements, the missions, the needs of our country, no matter how complex, no matter how dangerous. But if we don't tap into all the available talent, we won't get there. I'm I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But that's why I was so eager to participate in this event. Getting to your question about what led me to uh, the career that I enjoyed, mostly in special operations forces. I was in the Army for 38 years. 34 of them were in SOF. At the very beginnings, I was like all young men. I wanted to see what I could do. I, I wanted to test myself. This is something that all young people have one way or another. You know, How capable can I be? How how high can I fly? How fast can I run? I, I didn't know the answers to that when I was in my teens or even my early 20s. The good news is uh, a life in special forces and special operations showed me what that requires. I guess either because I was lucky or because I was somehow up to the task, I, I managed to have a very successful career. Not that there weren't bumps in the road along the way, But like anyone who spends a career in special operations or in specifically special forces, you know, the memories I now have, the experiences I once enjoyed, but most importantly, the relationships that I had the opportunity to have with, you know, a vast array of military and civilian personnel, U.S. and foreign, you and your colleagues there at Special Forces Command are very much in the middle of that mix, created a life and a career that were you know, the word fulfilling doesn't get it. Maybe if I just add the the descriptor, enormously fulfilling, it comes close to the mark. Now, 
I doubt you will be surprised to know that my memory is that when I went to the Q course in 1984, I was one of, I think, two Asian Americans in the entire class. And for the rest of my career, that became just part of my landscape, is that no matter whether I was an ODA commander or a company XO, battalion S3 et cetera, et cetera. Whether I was in a special forces group, my pedigree is first group, as you know, uh, or I was in a special mission unit. I spent about the same amount of time in a special mission unit as I did in a special forces group. I'd look around and I wouldn't see very many people like me. It just became part of my landscape. Now that in itself was not a problem. What was a periodic problem was that my ethnicity, my race, the way I looked, became part of someone's calculation on whether or not I was worthy of an opportunity, whether or not I was good enough for a particular task or a particular mission, whenever that happened. And it wasn't all the time. And matter of fact, it was sporadic at best. But whenever that happened, I had various reactions to it. Uh, and, and I will confess, sometimes my reactions weren't particularly useful. Sometimes I would just get incredibly frustrated. Sometimes I would just get angry. But those two emotions I discovered over time didn't help me very much. And what I almost by trial and error eventually learned was, at least for myself, this may be different for others that walked a mile in my shoes, whether in special forces or elsewhere. But what I discovered over time, really by experimenting, was that the most effective response that I came up with was to simply decide that I was going to prove myself to be better than the people I thought were trying to hold me back. Um, now, that may be because I'm stubborn, that maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm ornery. But while it didn't always work as well as I wished it had, it ended up being the most effective response I could come up with is just instead of fighting it, just demonstrate that I'm worthy of such an opportunity, that I'm worthy of such a responsibility, that I'm worthy of being part of a mission. And what happened, I didn't plan this, but in retrospect, I know, know this. In fact, because as I've mentioned to you previously, in my civilian capacity now, I'm part of a diversity and inclusion effort in my company. And I actually had a reason to ask myself over the course of my military career, how many times did a senior officer give me an opportunity to prove that I was better than the people that were trying to hold me back. And I actually found, figured out, going backward through my own lineage, on five separate occasions, a senior officer, sometimes a senior field grade, several times a senior general officer, basically told me this, look, Nagata, I'm not going to do it for you, and I'm not going to give you an unfair advantage but you deserve a chance to prove what you can do. So I'm going to ensure you get that chance. And then on most of those occasions, sometimes laced with a little bit of profanity, they would say, you better not screw this up because I don't do this for everybody, but I think you deserve the shot. So aside from my determination to you know, use this formula of, okay, I'm going to prove I'm worth it. What I didn't expect, but what happened was I was enabled by, I'll, I'll use a term that's become fashionable in the, in the diversity and inclusion world. I, I think it fits this particular circumstance. There were five unexpected champions in my career 
who came along and gave me an opportunity. They didn't physically or even mentally assist me because I think they knew instinctively that would also be unfair. But what they did is they gave me a shot. As I look back, to take a very long-winded answer to your short question to its conclusion, instead of fighting it, I decided to try to be better than the people holding me back, and it ended up attracting champions without which I would not have succeeded. Yes, sir. And selection's an ongoing process, we like to say in, in our soft. So we've all indeed been given many opportunities to, to succeed or fail. And obviously, you succeeded much more than you failed. And I've never heard the uh, adjective ornery be used when describing you ever, uh, but totally understandable. Is there any time in your career where you thought that your, your diverse background actually gave you a leg up or helped contribute to mission success? Yes. Uh, well, it goes all the way back to my origins in Alpha Company, 2nd Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group. The group had just been reactivated, by the way. I'm sure most people will still remember that 1st Group was deactivated after Vietnam, but then reactivated in 1983 or 1984. Anyways, I'd graduated the Q course, got assigned there, reported in to my battalion, and lo and behold, because it's AOR is the Asia Pacific region, rather magically, um, the fact that I was of Japanese American descent, I'm third generation Japanese American, became way more important than I'd ever experienced before. Ryan, you have an amazing upbringing, diverse background. Can you describe um, how you got to where you're at here at First Special Forces Command? Sir, uh, thank you again for allowing me to contribute to this podcast, first of all. Uh, General Nagata and I had a little bit of a chance to kind of discuss prior to this podcast, but um, I, I do think that in reflection of Asia Pacific Heritage Month, I think where General Nagata stands uh, versus myself, even though we do come from the same similar heritage, he represents sort of a, a third ingrained generation of Americans and many other Americans that came before him. Uh, I, I'm kind of slightly different in the sense that I, I am sort of the first generation to kind of cross over the Pacific. Regardless of how I look <laughs> or how I speak, I think uh, there's kind of a slightly different storytelling to that. So um, personally for myself, I, I came to the United States uh, at the age of 18. I was born in South Korea. But prior to that, my father uh, worked for the South Korean government. This was during the times of the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, during the Cold War, before the 1991-92 uh, turnover. Uh, so I, I do kind of consider myself a Cold War kid and have a certain kind of opinionated posture towards communism and still do. <laughs> so for me, it's not over yet. So that's the attitude that I take. So throughout my upbringing, what I did observe was that at that time, the United Nations did have a significant role in the power play and the positioning of international politics. And for that, you know, whether you're in the Soviet Union camp or the United States camp, it, it did matter uh, what the UN thought of you as an actual official member of the General Assembly and so forth. So... During that time as a child, I watched my father um, as a South Korean diplomat being sent over to all these different countries that one cannot pronounce on first or second instance. And as we're traveling to the countries such as West Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America, um, I kind of watched him try to not necessarily argue against the world, but try to influence and persuade and 
perhaps seduce them into thinking that South Korea was uh, legitimately had a place at the table of these great international players and so forth. So in, in sort of a funny way, uh, I do recall one night at a dinner table when I was listening to my mother and my father talk about his workday. You know, he had engaged one of the West African governments and was trying to buy their vote for some instance. And he stated that, well, I, I have five uh, Hyundai ponies to offer you. And a Hyundai pony is a really, at least back then, it's, it wasn't much of a, a vehicle, you know, of what Hyundai has kind of turned out to be today. But it's like a hatchback. It probably didn't have even like 50 horsepower. <laughs> and the West African government came back and said, well, the Soviet Union decided to give us however many dollars. And on top of that, the North Korean government is creating a mausoleum where our citizens can go and visit and you know, observe the greatness of the Kim family and so forth. So my father was like, how do you compete with that? You know, I only have five Hyundai ponies. So, but uh, long story short, uh, came to the U.S. throughout all that. When I look back, I think throughout it all for my father, um, there was always an idea of America in his mind. And, and I think even though positionally in his place and time of his life, that he was born in a certain country, I think there, there was a sort of a adoration and a respect for the idea of change and adaptation and uh, opportunity in the American uh, respect. In many ways, he had already positioned his family to make that transition. Looking back now, I kind of, I, I really appreciate him for having that kind of forethought because if it wasn't for that, it would have been quite a different life story. Not necessarily difficult, but, you know, uh, kind of a different chapter. Uh, so I'm, a, in many respects, a first-generation American, naturalized later part of my life. And throughout it all, in sort of my early middle adult life, I stumbled across the Army. Well, not as a, an amazing story as, as both you and General Nagata. My, my roommate in college... We were in high school together. He came over from Korea and probably was about eight years old, got his citizenship while we were in college. And he's the one that convinced me to go take ROTC because he said it was an easy A. And <laughs> he didn't stick with it. I stuck with it. I think he works for the FBI now. Um, we're still uh, very close, but it's just interesting that your, your point of view and, and, and talking to his father how diehard anti-communist they are, and then how patriotic they are. It was almost like his daughters and, and my friend, you know, that you're going to serve the U.S. government because they helped us during the war. So do you see any of that play out with your fellow Asian Americans? So I think in South Korea, conscription, mandatory military service is a must for all adult males in that country. Up to a certain point, I was also in that camp as well. In many senses, when I first revealed to my parents that I was going to join the army at the age of 27, it was a shock uh, because, you know, here they had survived through the 40s and the 50s during the Korean War, the end of the World War II from liberation from Japan to the Korean War and thereafter. And here was their uh, child that was potentially going, uh, putting himself into a uh, potential harm's way. And this is after 2001. However, 
upon deeper conversation, you definitely did see more of a respect for that decision from the father's side uh, and many of all my extended family because of their history of service of a different sort, but military service to a different country, but at the same time of the same idea. And I think that over my, I've been in the service for approximately 16 years. And you're right, uh, General Nagata, you know, sometimes you go to these formations and yeah, you're right. You may be one of two Asian Americans amongst that 300, 400, you may be the only one. And you start to kind of block it out of your uh, sensors and you just kind of get used to it. And everything's fine until somebody kind of mentions it and calls you comrade you know, as a joke. And it's, it's not funny, but I'll, I'll smile along. But I guess what, what I have seen over the past 10 years is that the Army has gotten a lot better about the recruitments of Asian Americans. And I think it particularly came from, I believe, the MOBNY program and the language proficiencies that some of these other first generation Americans had. And it was sort of a recruitment tool to bring them into into the formation and have some use, whether that be in the conventional forces or soft. But I do also think that it is rare that a lot of those uh, first-time inductees had remained on for a second term. I do believe that there's a different generation of Asian Americans who are committing to serve in the country. And General Nagata, um, your your position's intriguing to me. Obviously, um, you know, we mentor whoever's in our formation, regardless of race background. But what are some things that key leaders, senior leaders can do to institutionalize diversity and inclusion? Because as we said, people with diverse backgrounds are force multipliers in our formation. So what are some, other than just simply unlocking opportunities, what are some things that um, senior leaders can do to champion it? That's a wonderful question. And uh, this topic is enormous. Um, so I, no matter what I say here, I'm barely scratching the surface, but it's so important. I'm going to give you two suggestions uh, or two potential pathways, perhaps, that, that leaders, at least in my view, should focus on. The first one is kind of a, an obvious practical reality that anyone who has been assigned to the Special Warfare Center or has been, has been in any way, shape, or form connected or even gone through an assessment selection process Uh, knows a truth or has experienced a truth that was best, probably best summarized by something that someone that I know a lot of people on the call will remember, and that's uh, Doug Raditz, now retired, but he was once uh, one of my troop commanders when I was a squadron commander. Anyways, he eventually came to being responsible for the recruitment, assessment, selection, and training in the special mission unit I commanded. And he told me something one day that has always stuck with me. He said, you know, boss, there's like a dozen dozen things that we have to do to get somebody from recruitment all the way to being operationally proficient and, and part of the fighting formation. He said, but I've come to the conclusion that we can actually screw up any one of those steps along the way and still have a competent, effective operator at the end, except for one thing that we can never recover from. I was fascinated by the way he phrased it. So I said, really, what is the one thing you can't recover from? He just looked at me and he said, inadequate recruiting. I can recover from anything else, 
But if we screw up recruiting, I can't, there's nothing else I can do to recover from that. So that's number one. We should take a very hard look and a continuous look. We should stare endlessly because it's going to take, it's going to, let's face it, it's going to take generations for us to get to where we need to be. This is, this is a slow process. Um, the, the worst thing we can do is try to establish quotas that always backfires. So slow change is the only way to get there. So that's number one, recognize that we got to make sure our recruiting is matching what we say we need. The second one is best encapsulated by a saying that you and I are very familiar with. I think anybody who's spent a career in government or in the military knows it's the saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right now, I am very familiar with efforts in a lot of different military formations, and now I'm seeing it in the civilian world. There is no shortage of very well written, very clever strategies for improving diversity and inclusion. But what I'm learning in the civilian world is the same thing I saw in the military world. If that strategy doesn't improve ways of incentivizing cultural change in the formation, the rest of the strategy is irrelevant. It will not be implemented. There will be a lot of passive aggressive resistance. If there is not cultural change that is designed to gradually increase the diversity and the inclusiveness of any formation, military or civilian, the strategy doesn't matter. And Ryan, as a field grade officer in our formations, what are, what are some things that at your level or below that, that you've seen that are effective at increasing and leveraging diversity in our formations? Sir, I, I would say that, um, and not to be divisive, but I think there is a certain uh, mainstream way of thinking what the American identity is and ought to be. And just based on my first generational injection into my naturalization and Americanization process, I fundamentally believe that that is not the case. But in my 16 year career, I have come across from a junior leader to mid grade, many of my senior leaders who kind of evoke this sense. And sometimes it may be explicit, and it may not be intentional, but and oftentimes it's more directed towards me on some one-on-one to the point where one's idea of America or being an American is modeled after a certain prototype of our history of 250 plus years. Yet at the same time, that sense of patriotism and pride, what it does is it prevents the openness and it prevents the inclusion of the new inductees to this great nation. In many senses, like I kind of have to think about it in the, in the respect that five foot three frame man with a pot belly who brought five Hyundai ponies to West African, to a West African nation. To me, he's my American hero, even though not until recently he got naturalized in my mind throughout my iterations of conversation with senior leaders to even include uh, security clearances, update interviews. Uh, at one point I almost got in an argument with the investigator uh, because he was insisting that my father had to naturalize, you know, when in fact he was going through some health problems at the time. So it couldn't be a priority for him. But in my mind, my family, my children, as well as many of those in our formation, uh, their idea and model of the American identity is much more diverse and much more rich in 
I think if our senior leaders really took that and took ownership of that in spirit, I think we would get to a healthier stage of conversation and really not necessarily healing because, I mean, there's really no serious hurt, but there's a lot of unspoken stories amongst ourselves that could alleviate some of the uh, necessary team building that is critical once you you are on the app. Roger, and you know we, we've had a lot of uncomfortable conversations during our pathway to get to more diversity in our formations and establishing those diversity and inclusion councils at Echelon, I think has been key to doing that. What are some ways to start those conversations, even though a lot of people may not want to have them? What are some effective ways you think we can do that, both to you and Joe Magada, Ryan? While I was at First SFC the past year, we've had these conversations. And as a first-generation American coming into the United States, I observed the conversations about race and ethnicity. And it is very highly charged. It, it gets very polarizing, and, and it can kind of stunt a conversation and silence the room. I think what we need to do, it's kind of like the reference that General Nagata stated about blocking out one's status of a Asian minority amongst the multiples in a formation while he's going through selection and others and leadership positions. I think we need to kind of shift our focus away from this issue of race and ethnicity and in a practical manner, address that focus more towards our own formation within 1SFC and not to look at it within the race and ethnicity angle, but perhaps look at it from a RSOF branch functional difference that we have, composed of special forces, psychological operations, and civil affairs. And I do think that, kind of alluding to what General Nagata has stated about some of the cultural resistance that remain within our regiment, I do think that there is room for improvement concerning this idea of cross-functionality, and that is not just cross-functionality on the X upon arrival, and you have no choice but to get along with each other, but also a integration of those three branches earlier on with opportunities for leadership and opportunities and eligibilities for advanced skills of any nature, regardless of which branch you come from. Just kind of alluding to your example about the, uh, the Middle Eastern uh, first-generation soldier, uh, American soldier, who had gone forth and ha- was able to resuscitate the old networks and so forth. You can do that, sir, within the psychological operation formation, as well as the civil affairs formation. And I even had a personal uh, experience of this. Generally, got it. I'm actually a first SFG alum myself from 2014 to 16. And I was uh, fortunate to be part of a team that stood up the first special warfare planning detachment for SOCOR in support of the 3X office over there. In broad terms, I was a native Korean speaker. I was a value-added team member to that mission. But at the same time, one can't imagine, you know, you take that cultural understanding, language proficiency, and that observation skill that you have out of that first team the plank holder that goes out there, then I think the mission, achievement of that mission success would have been a lot more difficult. Maybe some of my teammates disagree with me, so as they may be uh, hearing this, but at the same time, I I was very appreciative of them for uh, inculcating me into their small Jedburgh team 
as well as the RSC. And it was a phenomenal experience that I saw with my own eyes, the effects that it was achieving in the short time that we were there. It's hard to follow that. It's always great to meet another first group alum. Thank you. So to your question, John, I, I guess I'll convey three things. One is a question that's always a challenge for any organization. It should be less of a challenge for a special operations or special forces organization. We do prize and and we try to claim that we are ruthlessly honest with ourselves. You know, go to any post-op hot wash and you, you can see evidence of that ruthlessness from time to time. But we still should ask ourselves the question, do we see ourselves accurately? When it comes to this question of diversity inclusion, I alluded to the fact that, you know, we did some analysis in the company I'm in and we had to go to the CEO and say, if you don't change something, instead of getting where you want us to be, which is more diverse and more inclusive, we're going to, we're actually headed in the other direction. That was a painful conversation for him. Wasn't particularly painful for me, but it was painful for him, but he had to grapple with it and he is grappling with it. I'm, I'm happy to say. I don't know how much of that we'll find in our the formations that you two still serve in, but I'll bet you we find some, but we only find it if we're willing to take a hard look at ourselves. And nothing is harder than taking a hard look at yourself. Everybody, all human beings would far rather do anything else except take a look at themselves in the mirror. I'm sure you're doing that, John. I'm sure General Baudet's doing that, but th- there cannot be enough of that because this is a problem that will take a long time to solve, as I've already indicated. The second one is, uh, in a way, I'm kind of repeating myself, you know, my line about, you know, culture is more important than strategy. Um, but, but here I'll pose it as a question. Does our culture, whether it's the culture of a special forces group or a culture of a SEAL team, or I don't care what, it, what part of SOF it is, does our culture actually value diversity and inclusion? Or is it lip service that we say one thing, but when you look at what we do, we're, you can't reconcile the two. I prospered. I was incredibly successful in special operations, but I still don't think it would be accurate to say we don't have a cultural problem. I am unequipped to say how big it is, how pervasive it is, but you already acknowledge that some of the trend lines in, in special forces command are not what they should be. There's got to be a reason. And I personally would argue that you're most likely to find the causes in our culture. Uh, And then finally, does the way we operate, particularly the way leaders operate, do we cultivate something I referred to in my own personal story? I, I talked about the five champions I can now identify without which I would never have retired as a three-star general with, you know, 34 successful years in soft. Do we cultivate those champions? Because in my humble opinion, they are absolutely indispensable to success. You know, none of these five officers that helped me along the way were Asian Americans. They were all Caucasian, but they went out of their way not to help me succeed, but rather to ensure I got the opportunity to succeed, if that makes sense. Thanks. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And we we pride ourselves as being recruiters 24-7, 365. So it's up to us at the grassroots level from me all the way down to the newest team members to cultivate and recruit from the right locations. We recruited from our AOR um, when I was in third group and fifth group because there's, like you said, there's talent out there globally that we need to tap into and our origins go back to that. So the 10th Special Forces group, first group, most of those folks were refugees where they escaped from behind the Iron Curtain in the 50s 
and you saw how effective they were. They spoke the language, they understand the culture where they were going to operate. And then we've we supersized it uh, to five special forces groups. But over time, I think we started recruiting, assessing where it was easy and not where it was hard. Diversity begets more diversity. So Ryan, if he recruits folks from within his family, his circle of trust, um, and then when he deploys, he can connect with wider populations that are very, very useful to our force and make us better. Appreciate the optics, sir, and that's hugely important to us because we know it's not going to be an overnight fix. It's it's generational. We're seeing a generation where we, we probably didn't get it right with where we were recruiting and then how we were cultivating that diversity. And over time, we're, we're going to have to make up lost time. John, would you mind if I added one thing? Uh, because you, you, your comment just now reminded me, and I'll be very quick about this risk tolerance, the importance of risk tolerance. It's like combat operations. It's like big exercises. You're never going to get everything right, right? Some things you plan will fail. Some things you attempt will founder. Some things that you thought are low risk will end up being high risk. That is inevitable. We willingly accept that in combat operations. We need to be just as willing to embrace that in our search, in our journey, for greater diversity and inclusion. Some of the things we try won't work. Some of the some of the concepts we'll come up with will not reach their lofty goals. That's okay, as long as we're still willing to keep trying, learn from our mistakes and be better the next time. It's an iterative process. We do it in everything else, but I've seen some reluctance in this particular arena because people are, because it's such a sensitive topic. Oh, we can't do anything that might go wrong well, then you're not going to succeed. You're just not. Because whether or not this is a more sensitive arena than some other things you may engage in, the iron truth is that humans learn best and improve best when they have the chance to occasionally fail. And it, and just because they failed, it, they don't get hung out to dry. They don't get demoted. They don't get fired. They're just, they're encouraged to, okay, don't do that again, but you got to find a better way and we will support you. Sorry, a bit of a rant, but that risk tolerance is so important. No, that's a great point because we're entrusted to do some of the nation's most sensitive and dangerous work. We should apply that as well with uh, diversity and inclusion. So we're all about starting at the grassroots. We're providing more support to the SORB so they can broaden their aperture as well. Ryan, any uh, closing comments? Yes, May is the Asian Heritage Month in the United States, but a lot of the things that we have just discussed, whether it be adjustments, adaptation, changing introspective looks and um, observation of others as well as yourself and learning through uh, failure, I think those, once again, can be channeled away from this contentious topic potentially and really focus on our formations and its health as the RSOP formation. And from there, potentially, as that improves, you know, hopefully the bigger national challenges improve. That's all I can say about that, sir. That's a great point. And I think a lot of diversity and inclusion issues stem from just lack of either lack of communication or lack of understanding. As a white male in RSOF, I may have a blind spot. I may not see things that are actually happening below the waterline. So talking to folks and getting their perspective unearths a lot of problems that I didn't know exist as a, as a leader. And I think we have to do that at Echelon really. And have those uncomfortable conversations to find out what's really going on and how do we improve iteratively, as General Nagata said. Sir, over to you to close it out. 
Well, first and foremost, Sean, thanks again for inviting me and Ryan to participate in such an important conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed this, and I hope you and your team have gotten some value out of it. Okay. In terms of closing comments, that what we aspire to be, we don't always succeed, but what we aspire to be more than anything else we aspire to be is the world's greatest problem solvers. You know, whether it whether it involves a kinetic strike or building somebody's capacity or just persuading somebody to do the right thing, you hand us the world's most wicked problem, we will show you we're the world's best problem solvers. Well, diversity and inclusion is a wicked problem. So if we're going to be enthusiastic and highly effective problem solvers in the world's most complex national security challenges, we ought to be able to do the same thing in diversity and inclusion. We are really good at problem solving. This is a problem. We should apply ourselves just as enthusiastically to this as we do to a national security problem, because the more we solve this, the better we'll be at solving those national security problems. Uh, the last thing I'll say is just that uh, this is a personal comment just for you, your entire team, and anybody in the soft community that may listen to this podcast. I just want to tell you how much I miss you. There is not a day that goes by. I, I, I work with fabulous colleagues in my commercial life these days, very talented, very energetic, some of them quite brilliant. But uh, I, I know in my heart, I will never again be associated with such a phenomenal community as I was once a part of. So I wanted to tell all of you, I miss you. I admire what you continue to do. And if there is ever anything I can do from my distant retired perch for you, John, for your command, for the rest of the team, please ask me because it warms my heart to be in touch with all of you. Thanks. All right, sir. Appreciate that great closeout. And you you do do a lot for us and our formations from the outside. Not as much as you did on the inside, which was phenomenal as well, but we really appreciate um, your efforts in the benevolence arena for, for all of our soldiers and their families. So thanks again for what you've done today and continue to do for us um, on a daily basis. And it was a great conversation. Thanks, Ryan, for participating as well. Uh, adding much more insightful outlooks to what we're doing, what we're trying to get after here at First Special Forces Command with diversity and inclusion. This has been the Indigenous Approach. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media, and if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.